Uh, hey, um, I want to tell you a story about when I was 16. Any 16-year-olds in the room right now that would admit to being 16? Um, you're 18. Yeah, 17. 18. Okay, well, you used to be 16 very recently. Uh, so here's a, a lesson from my 16-year-old past. Uh, I got a driver's license. It was pre, like, the restricted license. You know how, like, now you have limitations after you get your full-on license? Well, it was before that. This is 1998. Um, and, uh, but I was still restricted because of my parents' restrictions, all right? So my parents were restricted license before restricted license was cool, you know, if it's cool. Uh, but I could go to Olathe, I could go to church, I go to work. I worked at the Cracker Barrel right here. Um, uh, and uh, those are the places I could go. I get permission to go to my buddy Matt's house and I would get that permission to go to my buddy Matt's house. I would play basketball at the, the hoops here on campus at MNU. I could go those finite number of places. Then I was interested in a girl uh, and uh, Matt, my buddy was interested in a girl and we thought, you know what? Let's take these girls somewhere special. Let's go to the plaza. Now I knew, I knew the answer was no. Like if I asked my parents if I could take a girl to the plaza, uh, I couldn't take a girl anywhere. You know, that's the like reality of my life as an Indian son of immigrants was you were going to high school, you're going to college, you're getting a job and then you just get married. Like you just mail order bride married. That's not a joke. Like I'm going to get into arranged marriages today. That was what was expected for me for many years. Um, and the cultural traditions and, and just all those things. But I knew the answer was no to go to uh, the plaza. And so I, uh, I lied, you know, I disrespected my parents in a moment. And uh, I uh, didn't know how to get to the plaza. This is pre-map quest, 1998, you tracking? Uh, so I didn't know how to get there. I know that's embarrassing, but I was just 16, okay? Lay off. Uh, I didn't know how to get to the plaza, so I had a chummy, friendly relationship with my teachers. Small school, and uh, so I literally asked one of my teachers, my principal, actually, Mr. Adams. I said, hey, Mr. Adams, Matt, and I want to take these two girls down to the plaza. Uh, and he goes, that's great. Here's a restaurant recommendation. I said, ah, Mr. Adams, problem. I don't know how to get there. Uh, can you help me? And I remember he just said, I-35 North. Shawnee Mission Parkway, you're going to go east. That means right. He knew I was directionally challenged, so he gave me the right. Um, and then uh, he mentioned another parkway. I didn't really pay attention. I was just excited about the double date that was coming together. Uh, and so the, the day comes. We pick up the girls, Matt and I, and we head down Shawnee Mission Parkway. Uh, I-35, Shawnee Mission Parkway, take a right. Uh, kind of just get lost in conversation. Don't really, I don't track the next parkway. Ward Parkway that you're supposed to go left on, uh, blew through Ward Parkway, find myself very far from anything that's the plaza. Yeah, I was like just in Casey Mo, and I didn't know where I was. I had to stop at a gas station to figure out like, how do we get back to the plaza? And eventually, 30 minutes later, we're at the plaza and enjoying a, a French restaurant. This is just the vivid memories of being a teenager. And we had gator and it was chewy. Okay, I don't know, that's all I got. But we thought we were big stuff because we were taking these two girls down to this French restaurant on the plaza. Now I get home at a decent hour, it's like 10 o'clock, I'm just, it's parent-teacher conferences. Yeah. So I'm just catching up. Let me hear what my teacher said about me. They said some things about me. Mr. Adams, in fact, said some things about me. So I just go into their bedroom, plop on the, bread, on the bed, just kind of hanging out like, 
how, how'd it go? And they were like, how did it go at Matt's house? I was like, it went great. We just played hoops. And they said, we, we uh, ran into Mr. Adams today, and he said you asked him for some directions to the plaza. And at this, you're just done. You're done like dinner. You're cooked. There's no, I've already lied. Like, you know, that's, that's sneaky. You know, parents to like get you to lie and then do the appropriate, well, within their boundaries. They needed to do what they did. But I lost driving privileges for a long time after that. Now, uh, that's a moment of disrespect. We have all these. And that's when I was 16. Uh, fast forward 12 years. I can't get into this one because this was a different level of disrespect because now I was 28. And I said something lippy to my dad. It was not appropriate. And it kind of, we needed to repair. And, but these moments happen like as you interact with your parents. Now, what if the disrespectful moment in the scriptures that we're going to look at today uh, happened? And this happened between Jesus and his maternal, paternal siblings. That's who this happened with. This is an awkward moment in the Bible. It's in, uh, addressed in a couple, Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 3. And Jesus disrespects seemingly his mother and his brothers. Now, a little biographical sketch of Jesus. Uh, he's got a mother, Mary, a father, Joseph, earthly father. Uh, Joseph dies sometime before Jesus' ministry begins at the age of 30. So he grows up without a, uh, in his young adult years without a physical paternal presence in his life. Uh, Mary has some, uh, some other children, uh, half-brothers that we find for Jesus. And here's, here's how it reads. This is in Matthew chapter 13. This is what is said about Jesus. He's just beginning his ministry, and it says this. Coming to his hometown, he, Jesus, began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son, Joseph? So there's like evidence, Joseph, carpenter. They're like tracking with who Jesus' family is. They know he's a carpenter's son. Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James Joseph, Simon, and Judas aren't all his sisters with us. Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. First thing I want you to notice here is just the names of the siblings. Like James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, hang on to the name James and Mary. We're going to talk about those later. And his sisters are with them. And, and what happens is this group of people have now begun to be offended by Jesus because of some of the things he's doing. And they know that he comes from a human family, but they also don't know where to file all the things that are happening. They took offense at him. See, some like him, some love Jesus. Some have given over everything to follow him, left behind their livelihoods to follow Jesus. And then there are others who despise him, resent him. And it's interesting that the most vitriol, the most hatred spewed towards Jesus comes from those who should have been most clued in to this is how God was going to rescue his people. He was going to send a Messiah and he was going to save the world. But the people that were closest in, that had the Torah, that had the scrolls, they couldn't see this in this way. Now, I'm not, um, uh, I don't blame them because I misunderstand things all the time. I, um, I feel like I have a way I see things as going. And then when they don't go that way, I get offended. You know, when the eight-week-old doesn't sleep for eight hours, I'm offended. You know, <laughs> that's not what I planned. But in larger things of life too, when I get a diagnosis, when I get the, the thing that I was looking for, I, I feel let down, misunderstood. And so it's 
appropriate for them to be misunderstanding Jesus. Because Jesus comes onto the scene and he's not what they're looking for. He doesn't come with a sword in his hand like some other messiahs had come before. He doesn't come with a sword in hand to take out the Romans. He doesn't uh, actually come as a king and rule over people. Conversely, he rules under, he serves. Jesus says things like this. He says that his mission was to seek and save the lost. In another place, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And so this backwards way of Jesus has everyone trying to figure out what he is, where he's come from. We know he has an earthly family, but we don't understand how this person can do these kinds of things. Now, his clarity about his identity, Jesus, knowing that he was supposed to be here for one thing as God's son to seek and save the lost, this clarity has earned him very few friends among the religious elite. And this moment of disrespect happens when Jesus' family, his mother and brothers, are beginning to buy in to what his enemies are saying about him. He can't be God's son. God doesn't have a son. He can't do this. What, what kind of person is this? Is this the devil? Literally, at one point during Mark chapter 3, Jesus gets called out for being Satan himself. And Jesus very clearly says, no, that's not me. And it's an incredible discourse that we can't get into today. But when his family hears about all these things, when he, they hear about this, here's what the scriptures say in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. When his family heard about this, I've put the word this in bold because it's just all the stuff, all the miracles, the teachings, the things people are saying, the buzz about Jesus. When they hear about all this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, his own family said, he's out of his mind. They've come to take charge of Jesus because he cannot handle himself. He's insane. Now, there are uh, some cultural forces at play here that I want to dive into for just a quick minute. This is uh, Anthropology 101. Anthropology, study of human development, behavior, things like that. I think it's important for us to know that this Bible uh, happened in a place here. Just a little star on the map for Israel here. Right there. So this happened there. I'm going to tell you about the colors on the screen here in just a moment. Uh, and we live obviously here. Now the blue represents this uh, individualistic is one way to look at family styles. Uh, and then a, uh, a guilt and innocence-based system of ethics. So we're going to look at two things. There's like nine things you could look at when you look at anthropology. We're going to look at two things, your family and your ethics. And for people over here, we literally are over here because we wanted to individuate and become individualistic from what was going on over here. Just a couple hundred years ago, our very sense of America is true because of this independence that we wanted from the monarchy of England. So we are individualistic to the core. It's just who we are here in the West. Now, there's another thing about us that's, uh, that's true about us, and it's this, is that we have a sense of guilt. That's family, how we perceive family in the West. Like each member of a family unit can be different than another, and that's a-okay with us. That's great. Now, another way we think about uh, uh, ethics in the West is guilt and innocence. Our system of, of uh, our judicial system is built upon, do you bear the burden of proof to show that you're guilty of something and you're innocent until you do that? And how much guilt do you have in your life? That's how much you're going to be punished for. This is true in four-year-old toddler world. In our house, you get a timeout when you do this. It's just that simple, you know? But can we go back to the map, Ryan, on the previous screen? These two things characterize the blue parts on the map that you see here. Now, this is vague. 
uh, generalizations. I know there's different individuals, different family systems that might operate differently. But by and large, these blue areas of our map are individualistic and they get their sense of value from guilt and innocence. The rest of the world functions differently. And science, uh, sociologists would say 60 to 70% of the world doesn't function like this. And they actually function in a different way, which is uh, our next part of the, the chart I want to show you here. Family, so the same aspect we're looking at here, if we're individualists over here, families in the Eastern context are collectivist mindset people. Now, what that means is uh, my family. I am from, my family's from India. Uh, I was born here in Olathe. But uh, in the Indian culture, very much a collectivist culture, arranged marriages. Like I mentioned earlier, you joke, mail order bride, you laughed, somebody laughed a little bit. But literally, centimeters and kilograms in matrimonial ads, along with like how much you make, how much school you've done. And my, my parents are cool with that. Like that's a totally normal way for much of the world to work. To this day, arranged marriages are still a thing in most of the world. We here in the West are like, that's weird. It, it's different, but it's not right or wrong. It's just how my parents, grandparents, their, their parents, generations of people have functioned with arranged marriages. Why? Because this collectivist mindset, family A is marrying family B. This is not an individual A marrying individual B. This is families joining together. Now that's, that's different. That's different than how we view things. Now, another uh, aspect of this is ethics. And in the East, shame and honor are the values. They have law in Eastern societies, but their value comes from shame and honor. And the amount of shame that you're bringing to your family and the amount of honor that you're bringing to your family. Tim Challies, um, an author, says this about shame and honor. In a shame culture, your standing before other people depends on the level of your shame or honor. It's like there's an imaginary scale that has some shame on one side and honor on the other. And the things you do, the things you say, and the ways you behave can tip the scale in one direction or the other. It's a fascinating study in humans because in an Eastern culture, you could break the law in one sense and bring honor to your family because you honored the family. But you might at the same time token, do something that's a shame-worthy act and have heaped a whole lot of shame that might not have happened in a different context. So uh, you're welcome. You have some facts to impress your Labor Day barbecue cookout with people tomorrow. We are a collectivist. We are not a collectivist. We are an individualistic uh, society. Uh, 60, 70% of the world is collectivistic. That's what happens in Mark chapter three. It's a collective mindset. And so when Jesus is bringing shame to himself, he's not bringing it to just himself. He's shaming the whole family. And so there's some intense things at play here. Here's what happens next in, uh, in this story. Are you still with me? Okay, good. Jesus has gone too far this time and they need to rein him in. They wanna control him, they're worried for him, but more importantly, they're worried for themselves, the shame honor piece, Jesus is bringing shame. And if Jesus has enemies in their collectivist culture, then they have enemies. So in an effort to calm him down, rein him in, control him, take him out of the game, talk some sense into him, they head to where he is. Now, I don't know, they had 30 miles to like go from home to get to where he was. I don't know the conversation, but 
This is an intervention. This is Jesus' family, mother and brothers, coming to Jesus to take hold of him, to take charge of him. And I don't know if they use the words, this is an intervention. Clearly they didn't because that's a new phrase. But they come for Jesus. And here's what happens in Mark chapter 3. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Pause. Just because that in and of itself shows you the relationship is just toast. They can't speak to him. For whatever reason, there's like, this is the early stages of, of estrangement, you know. It's a painful moment. They have to send someone in to speak to Jesus. And when they send that person in, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, Jesus, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Your mother and brothers are outside the house and they're looking for you, Jesus. Can you feel the awkwardness of the moment where Jesus' non-family his not flesh and blood are closer in proximity and relationship to him than his flesh and blood family who are emotionally and physically separated from him. They want to see him and Jesus doesn't want to see them. He doesn't see them. Maybe saying doesn't want to see them is a bit of an overreach, but he doesn't see them. And here's the question he asks the people in the room. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. He doesn't miss a beat. They send someone in to say, Jesus, your mom and brothers are outside looking for you. They want to talk to you. And seemingly without missing a beat, he just asks this question, who are my mother and my brothers? It's rhetorical. Why does Jesus ask it? I think because he sees a different answer than you or I see when we see that question. Because the answer to that question is, it's Mary and James and the brothers outside. Those are your family, Jesus. That's the surface answer to the question that you're asking. Jesus continues and he says this. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I'm going to read it to you, just condensed here to one slide. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That creates something when he says that. It creates something in the room. Imagine being in the room. Imagine what you would feel when you lock eyes with Jesus and he says to you, you are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And, he, and you, you feel that deep affirmation of like, whew, holy smokes, Jesus just said, I'm his family. Because I'm here with him, because I'm doing this work with him, that's incredibly affirming. And on the flip side, once this messenger gets outside and sees James and Mary and the other brothers and says, hey, you're not going to see Jesus today. That's one level when they don't get to see Jesus and they turn around. But then I'm sure what's shared inside the room by Jesus gets shared outside the room. And that's just a different level of hurt. If I'm being honest, I'm like Jesus, insensitive, cold, calloused. What's going on here? Don't you realize Jesus' blood is thicker than water? 
Like, don't burn bridges with your family. Jesus, don't do it's That's what I want to say. And I'm sure James, if you're uh, thinking about his reaction to this, he's a really important person in the story of the church, which we'll get into here in a moment. And James, if I'm him, I want to run in and grab Jesus by the collar and say, Mom, you see what you're doing to a family? Like that level of anger and rage and like defensiveness would, would surface for me. What he's doing to their collective sense of like togetherness. Mary, imagine her reaction. Imagine that she thought she was doing the right thing, right? Coming here to get Jesus. Maybe there was some group think involved because they're collectivist minded and maybe it wasn't her idea. I don't know, but she's there and it's important because they think they have strength in numbers to rein Jesus in to control him. I imagine Mary going back home and just stewing over these words. Did he really not come and talk to us? Did he really say that this is my family those who do the will of God in this house. Did he really say that? Here's what I want us to wrestle with today. What if this seemingly disrespectful comment by Jesus isn't actually that, but it's actually a challenging invitation to come back in the room? I want to suggest that the intervention intended for Jesus, Jesus has turned around to be an invitation for everyone to step closer to his mission. I think if we look at these two people, Mary and James, we'll see some of that. Mary wrestles with the moment, but here's what we find at the end of Jesus. We don't have verbal uh, statements from Mary between this moment and the end of Jesus' life, but we have is a picture of Mary at the foot of the cross while Jesus dies. Jesus looks at her, addresses her, and she is one of few followers that have gathered for this moment that is ending Jesus' life. The disciples have frankly scattered, many of them, afraid to watch because identifying with Jesus at this moment is, is stupid, is, uh, uh, is, has consequences, but Mary remains there along with a couple other disciples. She didn't cut off from Jesus. I'm sure there was some wrestle, but she eventually returned to Jesus. James had a different moment. We actually have words from James. There's five chapters. It's a book called James in the New Testament. And they're phenomenal because uh, James was an early leader in the church, one of the key early leaders in the church. And he... He, as he wrote these words, years after Jesus had died and come back to life and then ascended into heaven, James is writing these words and he says, he's connecting these ideas of faith, what you believe, and your actions. And he says this. This is kind of the big idea in the book of James. Faith without deeds is dead. You want to believe something, show me what you do. Because faith without deeds, without evidence of deeds, is dead. It just, it just doesn't work. I can't help but think that James is wrestling on that day 
when they came to take charge of Jesus. And Jesus says, those who do the will of God, those are my mother and my brother and my sisters. And I think it had a, a, a lasting, life-changing, world-changing impact on James to hear those things. The intervention that was intended by Jesus' siblings and his mother for him, he turns into an invitation to say, those who do the will of God are my family. And so it seems like a disrespectful comment, but it's Jesus' way of inviting them closer into his mission. And these two choose it. We don't know about all of them. We don't have their biographies, but we do know those two. Now, here's the question that uh, you and I are left with. Where does, where does it leave us, you know, as we find ourselves in the story? I want you to imagine where you might be in the room or outside the room as this is playing out. Are you in the room leaning in, listening to Jesus? And do you get to, when you see the messenger come back, see the tension? And then do you get to see Jesus look at you and say, you are my mother and my brother and my sisters? And just the deep welling up of satisfaction that that has happened and you've experienced it. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're outside the house, but curiously listening in to like, this is fascinating. How is this going to unfold? Oh, snap. You know, just watching it all. And you're just a curious bystander seeing this scene unfold. And I think some of us are actually firmly outside the room. Like, you're not following Jesus and you're outside the room, you're not doing the will of God like those inside the room. And what I want to, to say to you today, to all of us today, because Jesus' flesh and blood family found themselves outside the room. And what they experienced was a deep invitation to come into the room. Jesus said this, here are my brother and mother, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and mother. What does this mean to do God's will? Very concretely, I don't want to make this complicated. Very concretely for these people, doing God's will just meant being in the room, being in proximity close to Jesus every day, listening to him, being with him, doing the things he was doing, joining the mission he was on in the world. So where are you in the proximity, in the proximity to the words of Jesus? Are you able to once a month, once a week, every day, be close to his words? Are you listening to him? What I love most in this story is that these people who were outside the house that wanted to see Jesus and left not getting to see Jesus actually changed their minds about Jesus. They, rather than doubling down and wanting to control him, they released their control of Jesus. And just said, I'm, I'm going to follow you closer. I'm going to step closer to your mission, Jesus. They heard the invitation. Now, if you are doing the will of God, then I just, and you're a man, woman, teenager, child in our community, I just want you to be deeply affirmed. You're a part of God's family. That's a beautiful thing. And if you're not like Jesus' flesh and blood family weren't, then this is an invitation. I don't know if it's been like a few weeks, a few months, a pandemic where you've taken some time and you've been away from Jesus. But what I want you to hear today is is there an invitation to come join his family again. 
to be really real, the past couple of years have been challenging for any church going Christian. They were just challenging disciplines to commit to being in a body of believers. And we had lives before the pandemic that were defined by being around other followers of Jesus frequently, you know, we had lives of service that were full lives of service. And some of that is happening again. Much of it, I don't think is. And there's a mission at stake here. I think that's why Jesus treats this moment so aggressively, so boldly with his own family. The mission is so critical here. Our mission statement as a church is mission critical in this, at this juncture. Our mission statement here is making space for building relationships that make Jesus first. We want to make space, lots of it in our lives, time, money, uh, just ways to be available. We want to make space for building relationships with, with those that are following Jesus in the room and those that are outside the room, curious and furthest out. We want to make as much room for those kinds of relationships as we can for one end, Jesus first. Mary and James left that day trying to see Jesus and not getting to see him, but ultimately doubling down and giving their whole lives for Jesus. The band is gonna play a song here that is, is an invitation. This is called Lean Back. Lean back into the loving arms of a, of a father who loves you. And as I was praying about this part of the message, I was like, what, what am I going to be feeling? What do I feel at this moment in the message? And I feel this. I feel like I'm here and God wants me to go there. Like he wants more from me. He wants closer with me. He wants time with me. He, he wants more. That's just what I felt. As the guy on stage communicating a word, I just felt that like clarion call to like dig deep. You might be feeling that. You might be feeling uh, nada, like zilch. There's nothing going on. You're like, it's just a dude, words on a page. It's 2,000 years old. I don't know that any of it's landing with me. That's okay. What I think is that God cares about each and every ear, set of ears hearing this message, and that he's got one mission today, this week, your life. That's to get you to believe that he loves you this much. And that he's got a mission in the world that he wants you to jump in on and go there with him. And God's just not leaving anyone out there to wither, to not hear of the good news that Jesus loves them. He loves you too much to leave you where you are today or later this week. And it could be uh, another place your emotions might be right now is kind of like a bouncy ball inside your heart where you're like, boom, boom, something's going on. God's trying to get my attention about something right now. Something from this story grabbed you. You might feel offended by Jesus. I want you to lean into that. God, what are you, what are you saying to me? It's been a long time, days, months, longer since you've been close in the room with Jesus, hearing his voice, listening to him. And this moment right now, real time, 1158, online, wherever you are in the room, where you get to hear God say, come on back, just lean back, I'm here. 
So what do you do to respond to something like that? I think you just say yes. And it's not a yes that happens out here visibly. It could, but most importantly, it just happens here where you just say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's me. Yeah, God, we, we say yes. Some of us have been uh, far from hearing your voice. And just today we say yes and know that you closed the gap. And we're at your feet at that moment. Thank you for all the ways, God, that you're speaking to us. In your name, Jesus, amen. Hey, we want to um, just say that's a big deal. If someone said yes in their heart and just kind of flipped from no to yes, that's really important. <laughs> and we want to celebrate with you. Here in a moment, we're going to clap for you, but also just know that online, here in the room, like God's moving and he's speaking. He's wooing people closer to him. And if you did say yes in any way, shape, or form today, then tell somebody about it. Get that yes kind of that was inside out of you by telling one of our staff people, telling a family member, and then, and then start moving where you come to midweek on the 14th. You get to dialogue with other people that are on this journey of making Jesus first. Some early in the stages, some seasoned. We're doing a baptism in October. That's like an incredible public way for you to make that inside yes become visible to a community. It's awesome when we get to see the yes happen in people's lives. So come tell somebody just for your own benefit and growing in Jesus. Let's give a hand to anyone that did. We don't know who they are, but... We just, we just have a deep sense that God's on a mission here and he's bringing people closer to him all the time. Next week, a week from today, we kick off a series on joy. It's going to be awesome. Don't miss it. Uh, thanks for being here today. Have a great Labor Day weekend. We'll see you next week.